Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome again to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. I am very happy tonight to be introducing you to a hedgehog-loving ecologist and author. He's also spokesperson for the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and there's a rumour that he is the world's only hedgehog stand-up comic, uh, which is pretty spectacular. That's quite a title. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh Warwick. (laughs) Sean, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for joining me. I think um, it's probably going to be a very, very popular episode because hedgehogs are, you know, the nation's favourite mammal by all accounts. Well, not just the nation's favourite mammal. Every time there's a vote or a poll, uh, the hedgehog turns out as the the nation's nature icon, nation's favourite species, not just mammal. Uh, I mean, I have great pleasure uh, when I go to events like bird fair. Uh, I'm yeah. pointing out to all of the massed ranks of ornithologists and twitchers and and and, and the assembled and the assembled masses of people with with ex- terribly expensive uh, binoculars and telescopes that 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 all of that stuff uh, can just go hang because when it comes down to it, it's the hedgehog that people love. That's it. And you can get right up close and personal with them in your back garden, right? Well, the good thing about the hedgehog is that, that they don't have a fight or flight response. I mean, pretty much every other uh, species you will come across um, when confronted by something as terrifying as the, the hulking monstrosity of myself will either uh, uh, run away or, or, or bite you. Um, and the hedgehog uh, does uh, neither. Uh, most of the time. I mean, I, there are many occasions, actually, when you've spent a long time with particular hedgehogs, as, as, as I have done when radio tracking them, they do get quite used to you and they start behaving differently. But normally, their reaction, the first thing they'll do is they'll frown at you. Because obviously, you know, the hedgehog is the only yeah. spiny mammal that we've got in this country. And the frown muscle goes all the way from above its eye, above its nose, down to its tail. Uh, and it draws all of the spines, uh, which normally lie flat. I mean, you can stroke a happy hedgehog. Not that I'm... I, I often have. I often have you. <laughs> really? Maybe we need yeah. to, maybe we, 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 in, in a minute then. Well, we shall talk about what you get up to uh, of a Saturday night. But until uh, <laughs> so there's a happy hedgehog, stroking a happy hedgehog. Then you, they frown, the muscle tightens, all those spines, they go all jaggy at random angles and they become, they become, uh, it's, they become yeah, that prickly, they become yeah. prickly, prickly ball. And then as they get really scared, they roll up into a ball. And um, I actually, um, I, I had a, uh, I had a midlife crisis a while ago, and um, I'd finished writing my first book, A Prickly Affair, and uh, then I was I was preparing to write a, another book called The Beauty and the Beast. And, and in The Beauty and the Beast, I went and met 15 people who were a bit like me, which, which some people found alarming. Um, and these are 15 people who were passionate about wildlife uh, with a scientific bent, I should say, uh, um, yeah. and, and, but, but also with an added sort of twist of eccentricity. So, you know, an otter woman who went and sent me, um, as we tried to find otter poo, she went and sent me um, um, uh, otter poo through the post. You know, you know, if, if anybody sends you dried feces through the post, I have a warning for you. This is, this is the, the, what happened to me. And, and this might be a tangent which takes us elsewhere. But We love back. tangents on this podcast. Okay. We're all about tangents, so go for it. <laughs> so Miriam Darlington is her name, an amazing poet and writer in her own right, has written a beautiful book about um, otters and owls recently. And um, so... We'd been out um, uh, um, in Devon looking for, for evidence of otters and uh, uh, failed to find evidence of otters. Found a few footprints, but no no poo. And she was determined to find me poo because um, she wanted me to smell the poo because she said, you will really love the smell of poo. Now, you should also bear in mind that people like to wind me up with these sort of things. So I was suspicious, but we didn't find any poo. And um, about two weeks later, a small uh, jiffy bag arrived through the post and, and, um, and it was a little cardboard box like probably held a nice pretty bracelet at one time and, and inside that was a lot of cotton wool oh, on top of the box was a lovely little drawn picture uh, of an otter with a very sort of Alice in Wonderland uh, sniff me next to it and right. um, so so then open yeah there's a cotton wool and inside the cotton wool a little plastic bag uh, with dried stuff in it now if 
people send you uh, little plastic bags with with sort of dried powdery stuff in it. You're often confronted with a number of options. I mean, do you follow the instructions on the front of the box, uh, or do you do the sensible thing, which is take it to the police? And yeah. um, I, I, but I thought, you know, it's an experiential thing. This book, so I, I did what any right-minded person would do, and and just took a, a great big sniff of this stuff because if it really is going to smell so wonderful, I want to capture the full moment. So. If somebody sends you a bag of dried feces through the post, do not take a large sniff of the contents because what will happen is you will spend the next 15 minutes sneezing otapoo out of your nose in an attempt to regain some sense of control over your eyes, which are watering like nobody's business. So you you really went for it. I went for it. (laughs) And rumour has it, am I right in saying it's likened to jasmine tea? Mixed with fresh hay. Mixed with um, every gorgeous sort of of that sort of flavour um, um, sort of ecosystem you can imagine. It's it's a gorgeous light fragrance with a little odour of fish in there as well. I was going to say you would think it would be fish heavy, but and it's it is it is absolutely marvellous. Now what you and and your listeners have got to do now is you got to gamble. Really, um, am I winding you up? Um, uh, are you going to go and take a sniff of an animal, which is not that distantly related to the skunk, um, and, and come away uh, uh, realizing that possibly not everything I say is reliable? Um, well, we'll have to find a, a market for otter poo now um, so that we can try it for ourselves, no? <laughs> <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh, that was it, my midlife crisis. Here we go. Yeah. So, I was, um, so I'd written a book about hedgehogs, and then I went off to meet lots of other people. And I was trying to work out how we could sort of measure um, the, the, the amount of uh, amazing of these species. And it dawned on me um, that, that as I'd started the, the book with me getting my first and last ever tattoo um, of a hedgehog, of course, it was of course. A, as an art project I got roped into up in Manchester called Extinct, E-X-T-I-N-K-E-D. I mean, really clever idea. Uh, yeah. This art collective uh, had pulled together uh, 100 species off the UK's biodiversity action plan um, and uh, this wonderful artist, Jay Redmond, had drawn pictures of each of them. And then they looked for volunteers for people to become ambassadors for each of these species. And, oh, um, and they contacted me and said, would I, would I take the, the role of the hedgehog ambassador? And so um, I, I got my first and last ever tattoo uh, um, as, uh, in front of an audience of people. Right. Alarming. Where, where did you get it? Uh, in Manchester. No, uh, where on your body? Oh, really? Okay. Well, the, that was... Um, you see, people ask that a lot, and I had to put a lot of thought into this. A lot of the lectures I give um, are to the Women's Institute, the Towns and Towns Women's Guild, the University yeah. of Third Age. So I had to consider you know, revealing the tattoo. You need to be careful with this choice, um, yeah. So I, but then... So I, I, well, I was actually doing a lecture for, for Miriam Darlington, who I had just been talking about in at Plymouth. She runs a creative writing course down there. And she got me in there to do a talk. And one of the students, she'd said at the beginning, she said, because um, I was saying, oh, I'm going to come in and do my usual sort of uh, thing. I might be a bit rude. I'm sure it'll be okay. And she said, but you've got to remember a lot of these are first year students and, and they were mostly women. And um, I'm, you know, I've got a daughter now who's, who's 17. So suddenly... In comes a lecture theatre full um, of people rough, you know, not that dissimilar to my daughter. And so I'm going, yeah. I can't say those things in front of them. Anyway, so I was, I had to tame my, my, my presentation a bit. But later, towards the end, uh, one of the students said, well, where is your tattoo? Um, because I was arguing, if you're doing a creative writing uh, project, um, if you're really committed to writing about something, um, I would suggest you need to be as committed as if you were getting a tattoo of that subject. You, know, you, you need to really go for it. There's no point being half-hearted with your writing. And so hence the whole idea of, of the tattoos came up. And, and so I, I don't know what got into me. So I jokingly started to undo my belt. And over half of the audience of students lifted their folders in front of their faces. I was going, I've, yeah, I've got to manage my That's audience. That's quite insulting. Well, yeah, no, completely that too. I was, going, I was hoping for a slightly different response. Yeah. Uh, the questioner is on my, on my left ankle. And so, okay. so therefore, yeah, what animal can match their hedgehog in its ability to form a point of connection with me? What animal will I fall in love with to, to bring me to the heady heights that I've experienced in the company of, 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 of 
hedgehogs. And um, in the end, the well, I'm not going to say, because actually it's the point of the book. It's called The Beauty in the Beast, and it's available from all good bookshops and some of them which don't pay their tax. Um, and, uh, and you will then find out what animal has adorned my... Um, has adorned my uh, left leg next to uh, next to the hedgehog. Oh, so you've got both. Ah, yeah, uh, you know completely. And and I've I've got another one lined up. I've got to. Um, I'm planning okay. on having a robin soon. I think. Though my yeah. wife hates tattoos, um, and uh, then I need a badger, um, obviously, because if I have well, a badger, it's a slippery slope. This you know tattoo. But I need. A, and you see, my my hedgehog is on my left leg, on my left ankle. You see, and if I get a badger on my right leg, I. I then have one of the most sophisticated jokes you can imagine, which somehow manages to incorporate sort of Frankie Howard with really quite elevated um, e- ecological understanding. Because if I have a hedgehog tattooed on my left leg and a, a badger tattooed on my right leg, um, I will be able to say with a relatively straight face that I'm the only person you're ever going to meet with an asymmetric intraguild predatory relationship between their legs. And, um, and, and you know, this, is, this is something which is probably worth the pain of a tattoo. That is quite the line. It's, uh, you know, if you, if you were single, it would definitely be a good uh, no, pickup I really, line, I feel. It was quite, <laughs> quite a niche, a very narrow niche of people. Would yeah, that maybe at Bird Fair, but not <laughs> many other places. <laughs> Good stuff, good stuff. Well, look, Hugh, the obvious question is, where did your fascination and love for hedgehogs come from? Um, Well, I was doing my degree um, in the heady days when we still had a polytechnic system, Leicester Polytechnic. And I was, um, uh, the opportunity to do the third year project came up and there was a whole bunch of -of run-of-the-mill things which everybody did every single year, which all looked really unattractive. And then uh, my supervisor said, a friend of his ran the Bird Observatory, established the Bird Observatory on North Ronaldsey, the most oh, northerly yeah. of the Orkney archipelago. And um, the concern up there was that, that um, hedgehogs had been introduced onto the island in 1974. There'd been no hedgehogs up until that time. Yeah. And a pair of hedgehogs had been introduced by the postman. Right. He had heard. Just for fun. No, no, no. He had heard on the TV. Uh, that um, if you want, if you want a natural um, control agent for pests in your garden, uh, uh, hedgehog is great to have. And if you haven't got a hedgehog in your garden, why don't you go and get one? Yeah. So now I think the people saying that were probably imagining you'd you know, go to your neighbours and plonk one of their hedgehogs down. But this guy went to Aberdeen and picked one up from his aunt's house and yeah. uh, brought brought two. So two. I brought a pair back, and either. It was a male and a female, or, or that you know one of them was pregnant. Um, yeah. But from 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 that moment, um, hedgehogs started to be seen on the island. And um, the concern was that the increase in hedgehog numbers uh, was uh, running parallel to a decrease in the breeding success of ground nesting birds, which is basically all of the birds on North Ronaldsey, because the few uh, miniature sort of wind-blown shrubs on the middle of the island really don't count for trees. And yeah. um, and so the bird observatory made the assumption that hedgehogs were at fault. And they were just interested to find some people who'd come and work very hard for free to to do the basic work. And so I went up there and I spent my summer holidays um, counting hedgehogs, basically. And right. it was it was fascinating, uh, a, a fascinating exercise, a real ecological problem, and yeah. um, has set the tone for the work I've done you know, right through to now. Even the next book I'm uh, looking at, uh, that I'm, I'm preparing, that I'm preparing a proposal for, is all about you know, these these wildlife conflicts where you have um, different arguments about how you manage wildlife, uh, and it really so it, it got this moment of real interest in me kicked in but with that also the fact that not many people had been doing work looking at the ecology of hedgehogs there was plenty written about i don't i don't know how old you are i think probably very young but uh, when i not, was, not very young no, when, I, when I was doing this there weren't computers and if we want to find out what had been written about something we had to go through these enormous array of volumes called the science citation indices and um this was basically google but manual and um and these all these things looking like phone books and you'd find a reference to the person who'd written a paper and then you found everybody who had Written, written and referenced 
about the paper you were interested in. And from that, you begin to build a picture of the, the uh, information out there. Um, yeah, now it would take me a few seconds um, uh, on Google to do this. But um, yes. anyway, so it was, it was a, lots and lots of work done on the, hibern- the, the, the hormonal fluctuations of hibernating hedgehogs, um, but very little done on what hedgehogs do because they're not a, a game animal. They're not a pest animal particularly. And, um, and so therefore nobody had paid them any attention. Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful uh, um, researcher retired now from uh, Royal Holloway uh, called uh, Dr. Pat Morris. And one of his students, Dr. Nigel Reeve, both of whom are friends now, um, were working on hedgehogs. And so I, I, was, I was drawn into it. I was fascinated. I went back on, uh, under my own volition to North Ronaldsey. I went looking for hedgehogs in Dungeness um, because uh, they'd been accused of eating black-headed gulls' eggs uh, and then ended up being employed to go radio tracking hedgehogs in Devon. And that was really it. That was the moment that this liking of it, this enjoyment of it sort of slipped across um, uh, that little line which 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 moves you into just loving what you do and 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 i've been there ever since yeah and you're a professional ecologist by trade yeah well i i was trained as an ecologist through my uh, but i very swiftly um when i was doing the the um work interesting this uh, pat morris was uh, we we're driving down to devon and um he was uh, saying well what is what were my plans and i said well I, i've applied for loads of phds and um and i haven't got one yet i had lots of interviews never quite made it and um you know i, I always wanted to be a vet that was my oh, i was james yeah. harriet james bloody harriet i read all these <laughs> books when i was a kid and i was like that's what i want to do i want to be a vet and then i found out you had to be really clever to be a vet um so so that that put paid to it anyway, really but, clever or really stupid i mean i i well, fell for james harriet's charms as well and i became a vet okay it's a fine line isn't it <laughs> okay, <the experience. laughs> anyway so i was um traveling down and, and, and i he said why do you want to do a phd and i said well because i want to keep doing this work he said well you are doing this work and now i'm paying you to do it i said oh, okay i said but also yeah. i want to you know, spread the word so well, it's fine you write scientific papers you don't need to be doing a phd to do that and um and then whilst I was doing the work, he got um, an, an amazing woman, Ros Kidman-Cox. She was the editor of the BBC Wildlife magazine then. And that was my favorite magazine. I, I absolutely adored it. And, and she was a bit of a hero of mine because she made the magazine happen. And, mm. um, and Pat brought uh, Ros down and she spent a night out with me radio tracking hedgehogs. And at the end of it, she said, um, I, I want you to write a feature about this for the magazine. And, yeah. and it was just that... So I do these lectures on creative writing. I now, I can summarize the lecture. I'm going to do it now. People won't employ me. But anyway, it's worth it. Um, and I, I looked at her sort of flabbergasted and just said, well, how? And she said, well, it, it, it's simple, really. Imagine you're in the pub telling them what you're doing, just like you've done with me. And I said, okay, right. Write it down. And that yeah. was it. So I spend my time in the shed I'm sitting in now when I'm at a point where I'm not quite sure how to take a, a phrase, a paragraph, an idea on, and I simply talk to myself. And that's how I do it. Um, I'm afraid it's really difficult to spread that over a two-hour lecture, but I, I do my best. Uh, but yeah. it, And so she got me writing. And, and that's what shifted me. So I became, I've written you know, about loads of other people doing amazing wildlife and done travel uh, features and then you know, yeah. did magazines and, and, and now write books and, and things. So, so yes, I mean, my background is in ecology. I, I, I work as a spokesperson, as you mentioned, for the British Hedgehog Preservation Society. I help manage the Hedgehog Street Pro, uh, campaign. Um, I'm, I'm involved with it, but, but I'm not out there doing the field work anymore, um, which at times um, I miss until I join uh, one of these youngsters out there doing the field work. And then I go, I'm getting too bloody old for this. Yeah, those late nights. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the no night, you're up all night and then yeah. you get home and you're looking after family. You, know? you take 20, <laughs> 24, 48 hours to recover. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we talk about some of these things, you have a new book out. Um, it's just been released. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. It's your, is it your third hedgehog book? It's my Second third hedgehog book. Yeah, it's basically yeah. My, my, my fifth book in total. I have um, my... Uh, um, when I, I said I was writing a second book about hedgehogs, my wife 
pulled funny faces. Then it's the third book about hedgehogs. Um, what she doesn't know is I've actually got a fourth book about hedgehogs lined up, which is the best one ever. Unfortunately, it? it's going to require a TV commission to afford it because it's it's going to involve uh, a massive trip around the world. Um, oh, you're going to do Hedgehogs of the World? Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the Year of the Hedgehog. Um, right. There are 14 species of hedgehog around the world. Uh, as, as far as I'm aware, and I'm pretty confident about this, no one human being has ever met all 14 species. Um, and, and That's what quite better, the mission, all right. Yeah, yeah, completely. I went to China um, uh, when I was writing A Prickly Affair to go and find the most famous of all the hedgehogs uh, from my perspective. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, it was a Franciscan, a Franciscan missionary in China. Um, I, I came across a hedgehog and, um, and sent it back, or killed it probably, uh, sent it back to the Natural History Museum. And um, his name was Hugh, Father Hugh. And, um, and uh, so they named it Hugh's Hedgehog. And, right. uh, and so there is this thing out there called Hugh's Hedgehog. And when I, by the time I got to China, which for those of you who have not been, is, is a lot bigger um, than, than you might think when you're trying to find a hedgehog. Um, I, 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 there was a map in the Natural History Museum in London, and uh, there were these you know, very small dots on the map of the 12 times this hedgehog had been recorded in China. And, wow. and I just yeah, took a copy of the map and went to, went to China with a, with a, a met a guide, an interpreter. And we, we looked at these dots, and I measured them and realized that each dot was the size of Greater London. Um, and so that was like, yeah, we, we know a hedgehog in the last 100 years has been seen within that dot. Um, and needless to say, it was an entertaining, if not entirely fruitful um, project. But um, yes, I still got to find Hugh's hedgehog. Plus. So you didn't, you didn't find your namesake hedgehog? Well, yeah, read the book, you'll see. It's, it's a slightly, I, I, I had to, um, I was creative with it. Okay, good stuff. But this book is quite confidently titled The Hedgehog Book. Yeah, I, right? it's part of a series. So the publishers, Graphic, are this amazing bunch. I mean, a, a little publishing house based in Wales, and they've got a whole sequence of these books. Um, um, in the, the titles are not massively sort of uh, nuanced. I mean, yeah. there's the hair book, the owl book. Um, the, the got us. Book, the They're sticking book. to a theme, and I, this is, I think, their tenth book, the Hedgehog book, and um, it's they're heavily illustrated. Um, and the thing which I like about this book the most, actually, is that people will pick it up as a gift book because it looks it looks it looks fantastic, actually. And I can say that because I had nothing to do with the design. Um, it looks absolutely wonderful, uh, uh, but actually, the words inside it are all the right words. I mean, I, you know, it is scientifically, robustly accurate, but it also delves into uh, the mythology and the folklore of the hedgehog. It, del- it looks at the way the hedgehog has appeared in advertising, yeah. in, in entertainment. Um, and it's a, so it, it's, it's fun, but uh, um, along with the fun, there's, there's an awful lot of fact. And, um, and it's, yeah, so it's a book which um, I've already had uh, a friend of mine's uh, kid, 11-year-old, um, uh, got an early copy because uh, it was their birthday and absolutely yeah. devoured it. But, you know, it's proper proper grown-up stuff. Interestingly, A Prickly Affair was reviewed by Jeanette Winterson and The New Scientist and The Economist and things. Uh, but um, actually, some of my best reviews uh, came uh, from interested 11-year-olds. So, you know, I, I, it's... A- well, they're a tough audience, those 11-year-olds, right? Well, they are. <laughs> and, um, and I think probably uh, um, I'm at about their level. So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Now, look, before we um, kind of get on to why hedgehogs are amazing and all the different species and things like that, let's talk about the kind of the serious issue um, that British hedgehogs are in decline um, and in real trouble, um, I would say. Um, yes, I mean, it's been, because I've been involved with, with sort of the hedgehog world now for, for, oh, God, how long is it? How old am I? I get I lose track of these things. It was the mid eighties that I started doing work on hedgehogs, and we weren't yeah. really talking about conservation issues until the sort of early nineties, really. Yeah. Um, and then we began to start. You know, things aren't. You know, things feel like they're changing, but. For me, I mean, again, I, I, I mentioned I've done these talks at the Women's Institute and the Towns Women's Guild, and you know, these tend to be an audience, or a m- more mature audience. And yeah. um, it was every single time I would give a talk, you know, the question would be, well, why am I seeing fewer hedgehogs? 
And to begin with, I did wonder whether this was a bit of one of those nostalgia kicks. You know, you get to a certain age and you look back and you go, well, the summers were always nicer and food tasted better and teenagers were politer and all that sort of thing. Um, But actually, that sort of anecdotal observation is right on the money. And it was interesting. It wasn't the Well, especially when you're hearing it every time you talk about a subject, right? And it's interesting. It wasn't the ornithologists that noticed the disappearance of house sparrows um, in London. Uh, it, no. it was members of the public because... Who had them in their hedge out the front garden. And, and the ornithologists yeah. were only bothered about avocets and golden eagles. Yeah, it, it was, it, this was that sort of the, the mundaneness escaped the, the, the more, um, the, the sort of the, the ecologists more prone to being attracted by the charismatic megafauna. And so yeah. the hedgehog was largely ignored from that point of view. And, um, but the, you know, these stories kept coming and, and the, the evidence, there's the really gruesome evidence coming from a project run by the People's Trust for Endangered Species. It's called yeah. Mammals on Roads and it does what it says on the tin. Um, I was just going to mention roadkill is an indicator often, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, to begin with, it's like, well, more hedgehogs killed on the roads must mean we've lost all our hedgehogs. But actually, uh, the measurement shows that if you have lots of hedgehogs killed on the roads, it tends to mean there's a healthy population. Yeah, um, and if you have no hedgehogs killed on the roads, you sometimes a story will appear in the press where suggesting hedgehogs are evolving the capacity to to uh, uh, avoid roads. And you know, hedgehogs are wonderful in many ways, but they're not getting any brighter, and um, so they yeah, they still get run over. Um, it's interestingly complicated because very recently during lockdown, um, a paper was published or. A, Maybe it was just a report, and it was showing how that there'd been a reduction in the number of hedgehogs killed on the roads. Uh, but this was a measure of the reduction in traffic. So it, it, I have there are very clever statisticians who uh, tease all this out for me. I mean, they, they're way above my pay grade, um, but they're the ones who, who who work out which is a real indicator and which is a, mo- a measure of traffic. But that's just one of our measures. The, the Living with Mammals is another citizen science project uh, which the People's Trust runs. Uh, um, there's the work from the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology, have uh, uh, this staggering array of citizen scientists who, who supply the garden birdwatch data, and they've now started recording hedgehog sightings in that too. I noticed that, yeah, last year in and it's survey. Absolutely brilliant. So we've got all of these streams of data coming in and um, and they allow us, I say us broadly, they allow the clever people to to do the maths and they come out of it and they give us I was I was in, I was interviewed by a journalist from The Guardian yesterday and they were they wanted me to say a number. How many hedgehogs could the UK support if we made things better for them? And I say, well, we don't even know how many hedgehogs there are now. Um, counting hedgehogs is tricky. Uh, uh, when you've got you know, eensy-weensy things like wrens, it's very easy because they are territorial and they're noisy and you can count them. But hedgehogs are, aren't territorial and uh, they share home range. And, and they're secretive, they're nocturnal. And yeah. um, it's, so it, they're difficult to count. But the measures we've got, chart the population change. And so we know with quite a degree of robustness now that since the year 2000, population of urban hedgehogs is down by 30%. And the population of rural hedgehogs is down by 50%. Now, this I should add is the 2018 report, the new report will come out at the beginning of next year. um, And we'll see how things have changed. But the urban hedgehog population had leveled off at that 30% decline since the year 2000. But the rural hedgehog population was in free fall in many places. Um, Now, that is just since the year 2000. The Mammal Society published a report uh, suggesting that the hedgehog population was down by about two-thirds since the mid-1990s, which fits into a similar sort of trajectory as our data do. I'm asked, what was peak hedgehog? And I go back to the WI and the Towns Women's Guild and the University of the Third Age and the fact that people who are now seeing one hedgehog a summer, if they're lucky, or no hedgehogs at all, used to, when they were young, see tens, twenties of hedgehogs. Yeah, they'd see them regularly. It was like a nightly yeah. And you start to chart that sort of change. I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that there's been a 90 to 95% decline in hedgehogs since the end of the Second World War. Yeah, that's the stat that I uh, looked up. The 95% decline since the 1950s seems to be fairly well um, agreed upon. Well, because I say it a lot. 
do. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, honestly, I mean, this is this is not this is not robust. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. and I, I, it sounds really pedantic, but the work that we do with the Hedgehog Street campaign has to be based around stuff which is robust. So, yeah. I have a flight of fancy based around a bunch of elderly people, which takes me back to that figure. But we cannot prove that, and actually, we cannot use that in our arguments with you know, trying to change policy because we can't just we can't back it up. But what yeah. we can do is the robust data from the year two thousand onwards. Um, I, I know I, I should. The thing is. We don't really need to over-egg the pudding. There was a, um, a, a piece done by Michaela Strachan, uh, a Springwatch presenter, yeah. which is great. I, I've had the pleasure of meeting her, and she's great fun, but she's not an ecologist, and she wrote a piece for the Radio Times um, a few years ago in which she said hedgehogs are going to be extinct in, in 10 years. And um, and I was then, my phone was like ringing off yeah, the hook. And, off the hook. <laughs> uh, and it's like, but it, she, I presumed she meant um, um, you know, locally extinct. Actually, she was she looked at a graph, basically, which if you drew a straight line on the graph, it would hit zero in 10 years' time. But that's not the way this works. And the hedgehog won't be extinct in 10 years' time or five years' time, as the case would be now. Um, yeah. There will be far fewer hedgehogs, but they won't be extinct. And we do not need to over-egg this pudding. This is a serious problem already. We don't need to make stuff up. Because if we make stuff up, then we, you know, in, in five years' time, uh, we'll have somebody saying, well, there are still hedgehogs. Why should we believe what you're saying? Um, yeah. Yeah, we. So anyway, uh, just a shout out for the science, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what are, what are the reasons for their decline? So we're seeing declines in all wildlife species. There's a yep. massive biodiversity crisis. The overall kind of general principles apply to almost everything that since the dawn of kind of industrial agriculture, the use of chemicals in food production like pesticides and herbicides and things, the um, obliteration of natural habitats for food production in the countryside. I presume those are the biggest things that have impacted what is, you know, an insectivore in our countryside that's relying on insect and, and invertebrate biodiversity mainly to survive and also the kind of habitat connectivity um, that, that it needs. Those would be maybe the biggest um, yeah, factors. absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at um, the BTO data for um, farmland bird decline, I and mean, that shows a something like a sixty percent, fifty five, sixty percent decline between I think the year two thousand and twenty seventeen. I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you look at the data from anything that Dave Goulston is publishing, looking at macroinvertebrate population decline, in particular the various species of uh, bees. And they show yeah. similar levels of decline. You look at the uh, the data from the German study, uh, which showed a 75% decline in 27 years of uh, flying insect biomass within protected areas. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right. We are in, I mean, I've written about this. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's a phrase, there's a word which I think we need to start talking about because we, we've become sort of hooked on the idea of protecting biodiversity. And obviously, you know, diversity is crucial. Uh, but we've done that to the point that we ignore abundance um, and oh, yeah. bioabundance. And, and there was a, um, uh, I'm, I, I, I get a bit overwrought at times about these things because it, it does really affect me. But one yeah. night I was cycling back from, from a dance class uh, on a summer's evening and I'd cycle back along the towpath of the River Thames and then um, back across a couple of roads and then along a brook. Uh, well, brook, it's a canalized ditch, really. And um, I was wearing a head torch. And, yeah. and, and you, you, this is... You can tell a happy cyclist by the flies between their teeth, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Not anymore. Um, and I was cycling along, and suddenly I saw a moth, and it fluttered around. I was like, oh, there, there's a moth. And then I, I just had gone on another sort of 10, 10 meters, and suddenly it was this moment of going, oh, my goodness. It's unusual. That was to see the that. first moth I'd seen on the entire balmy, warm summer's evening ride alongside a river and then up past a brook. And yeah. um, I, I, I burst into tears. I mean, it was just, it was just that it really, it, it gave me such a clear indication of how bad things were. All the papers I've read, you know, the reports I've read are startling and horrible. But this one moment. Um, mm. And and uh, Michael McCarthy, um, I, I'm Mike McCarthy wrote this amazing book called Moth Snowstorm, and um, I'm, read my books first. But anyway, his book is absolutely <laughs> astounding. I've bought it from so many people as presents. So you just got to read this book because he talks about. I mean, he must be, um, I imagine, late sixties now. Um, he talks about his childhood memories of the moth snowstorm, of driving yeah. through on a summer's evening and having to scrape stuff off the windscreen and the headlights when you've got yeah. insects squashed on them. And you know, again, these insects haven't got any cleverer. They're just not 
there. So, so well, to I, your question, so I, I think it's quite yeah. important uh, um, to actually answer your question rather than just ramble entirely, um, is that, yes, the loss of insect food, uh, invertebrate food, macroinvertebrate food is absolutely crucial for the hedgehog. Uh, but also, as you say, connectivity. We're 300,000 kilometers down on Peak Hedge. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to be couple of years ago now, uh, Chris Packham uh, launched the, the People's Manifesto for Wildlife. And, and he got a whole bunch of uh, ministers for various areas of expertise. And he phoned me up and he, he was saying, well, I'd like you to be the minister for hedge. Uh, hedge I mean, obviously, he's going to say hedgehogs. I thought it's a bit niche, uh, but oh, yeah. I'll take it. But actually said hedgerows. Uh, okay, I'll take it. Because um, I've just written a book called Linescapes, which is all about um, um, habitat fragmentation and about the way we re- can reconnect our landscape. Yeah. Uh, and um, and it was a really interesting exercise looking at the state of our nation's hedgerows and of the remaining hedgerows that we've got. Um, around sixty percent of them are in poor condition. Uh, so yeah, these linear features in our landscape um, not only provide the corridors for wildlife to move um, between areas of abundance, but also uh, um, provide a habitat in themselves. And, um, and and so the loss of the hedgerows combined with the obliteration of, of macroinvertebrate life is, is terrifying. Uh, and, and tied in with this, and because you will get letters, um, you cannot ignore the impact that the uh, uh, the healthy population of badgers have on hedgehogs. Um, yeah. I know that I have, well, I know, I think I've got this about right, because when I was on Country File talking about the badger hedgehog thing, I got angry messages from both uh, farmers and from badger lovers. Um, well, it's a political hot potato now, right? <laughs> um, well, the thing is, I mean, we, we funded research at the University of Reading, uh, which looks at this very clearly. You know, I was joking about that idea of uh, the asymmetric intraguild predatory relationship between my legs, but that is what the badger and the hedgehog have. Um, they're principally competitors for the same food resource. They, they are macroinvertebrate yeah. specialists. And our best understanding of this is that when the wider ecosystem becomes degraded, the badgers shift their relationship with hedgehogs from, from competition uh, through to predation. But also, the radio tracking work, which has been done by a number of people that we have funded, has shown that actually the issue is less, well, not less, but is, is probably as much to do with fragmentation of the landscape as it is to do with um, um, actual predation events. And so yes. if you imagine, um, in the literature, it's referred to as a rural refugia, uh, otherwise known as a village. Um, you know, the hedgehogs in a village would normally radially disperse from that village when they felt adventurous, horny, there were too many of them or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you add into the mix now um, that we have more badges than we used to have. Uh, we have 300,000 kilometers less of the way of hedgerows. And we have an ecosystem which is devoid of other macroinvertebrate food. And um, you end up creating a landscape of fear for these hedgehogs. And they tend to stay around the villages far more than they would otherwise. And um, um, the radio tracking studies have shown you know, hedgehogs moving down a hedgerow uh, and they get to a badger set or a badger latrine and, and they turn around and come back again. This then creates an island. I was going to say the island little pockets of isolated hedgehog and this is important. So we thought we ought to check what are the minimum requirements that that hedgehogs have to thrive. So we uh, again, clever people. Uh, Tom Morehouse at the University of Oxford. in, in Wild Crew. Um, he's a water vole expert, but also a, a statistical whiz. And he ran a, he, he created a computer model for us to look at what the minimum viable population requirements are for hedgehogs. Um, yeah. you, know, you imagine an island the size of a football pitch and you have one male hedgehog on it and all the worms in the world. It, it, it's useless because it's not, it's not a viable population. And you have an island the size of a football pitch uh, and, and um, you've got a million hedgehogs on it, then it's useless because there's not enough food and there's no shelter. Um, and somewhere between those two, you, you, you can find out what's the minimum number of hedgehogs you need and the minimum area they need. And very roughly speaking, in the best habitat possible, which is a nice suburban area, you need 90 hectares, so nearly a square kilometer, and you need 32 hedgehogs. So suddenly, so this is in the best habitat possible. You've got to find a nearly a square kilometer unfragmented. Now you identify me a square kilometer of suburbia, which hasn't got a busy road, a railway line, a canal, or any of these other obstacles in the fences being the obvious 
Hugh, when you say a viable population, you mean a self-sustaining one? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. So one which which would keep, basically the model looks at a population which would be able to keep itself going for 100 generations. And not Uh, kind of get inbred or die out. Yeah, and and would be able to move around and have enough um, variability. And so, so unfragmented 90 hectares and in, the best, hedgehogs. in the best habitat. When you move wow. to the rural landscape, you're looking at four or five square kilometers. Uh, again, unfragmented. And that fragmentation, yes, it can come from a busy road, but it also comes from the presence of badgers and the lack of linear features for hedgehogs to move through the landscape. The name of the hedgehog is not one of the great mysteries when it mm. comes to derivation. They hog the hedges. They are an edge specialist. And um, when you confront a hedgehog with uh, a, you know, a massive field of oilseed rape, um, Dave Goulson's work recently showing you know, this is going to have, on average, these have um, 17 applications of biocide each crop. And you're obliterating yeah, competition. So the, they've got molluscicides in there plenty. You've got the insecticides. You've got the herbicides. There's no good reason for a hedgehog to set foot into that field. Well, it's a sterile desert, really. And there's no edge for them to go around it because there just isn't an edge. Um, And any edges there are may well be occupied by badgers. So we've created these islands, whether it's in suburbia or in our rural landscape, which then restrict the ability of the hedgehog to move and to find new places to find food and to breed. And and yeah, essentially, it's us. I mean, sorry, to go back to your question, what's causing it? us it's us no no great uh, new kind of <laughs> revelation there that it's always us isn't it in most well, of these I don't know, sometimes i mean for a long time we used to think it was something like a god or whatever but no no now we yeah. know this is definitely down it to is us. it is now moving then on to you talked about their kind of natural kind of ideal habitat and things moving into the urban landscape mm. and urban hedgehogs this brings us nicely on to the petition that you've mm. launched which has gone absolutely astronomical in terms of the, the reception um which is about connecting uh connectivity of urban habitats specifically our gardens right can you tell us a little bit about that well, I mean, I've been working with the Hedgehog Street campaign um, right from the beginning. And it, yeah, it, it, it's brilliant a brilliant campaign. Collaboration between the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and the People's Trust for Endangered Species. And it's one of the problems I have doing media work for Hedgehog Street is both organizations want their names mentioned. And so you have your brief moment on air. And by the time you said Hedgehog Street, which is a collaboration between the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and the People's Trust for Endangered Species, you've had your moment. Anyway, yeah. um, so we, we, this is this campaign, essentially the idea was we know we've got these requirements for hedgehogs uh, to, to move uh, through the landscape. What's the one thing we as individuals can do? If we're lucky enough to have a garden, we just make sure the garden's wildlife friendly. That's fantastic. We can sit in our garden and we can observe the bats and the bees and the birds and the butterflies and, and everything else that begins with a bee. And we can also observe that they've all got wings and they can get over the boundaries. Um, so we need to let the hedgehogs into our gardens. And the Hedgehog Street campaign has got loads of amazing top tips, you know, making sure your ponds are hedgehog friendly, removing the hazards, all of this. But the principle yeah. of it is make the hole, make the access point. 13 centimeters across um, is all it needs to be, the size of a CD case for those old, yeah. if you remember what those are. And um, it's a, you know, this is all we need to do. We make that hole. You talk to your neighbors first, make the hole. And actually, I just, I mean, having done this myself, it can be really quite hard work. I, I've got a, um, a powerful drill with a, uh, a third, what, 127 millimeter core drill bit on it. And it's bloody hard work going through brick walls with that. Uh, yeah. And quite scary because um, power tools terrify me. And um, <laughs> I was, um, I, I, sorry, I've done this, but actually it was like retrofitting is hard work. Yeah. You can also, for example, concrete gravel boards at the bottom of those uh, large lat fences. The fences, yeah. yeah. Bit, but most of those are, are reinforced with, with, with you know, metal bars. So you don't want to go in there with a drill because okay. it's going to be messy. Um, so, so we have a, a, a situation. Wouldn't it be better if the holes were there in the first place? So we started talking to fence manufacturers. Um, I spoke to one developer and, um, and he was saying, he'd looked into it. He said, wait, well, it's about 50p more a house to put in oh, wow. one of the gravel boards being hedgehog friendly. And that was yep. when there weren't that many around. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if these things, it just became the thing that people did? The norm, yeah. And cause, so change.org, um, the, 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 the petition platform, got in touch with me. And, and they said, uh, this, was, this was just out of the blue, actually. They said, well, hedgehogs are great. Um, what do you want? You can ask anything, Okay here is your chance to, to raise a petition to ask the public for a single thing. What is it you want to do to get hedgehogs back to their former glory? And I, I paused for a moment. I thought, well, this is perfect. 
So I, I said, we, we need a petition which is calling for the dismantling of industrial capitalism and the replacing of it with something nicer. <laughs> uh, and you didn't... They, they, lofty goals, lofty they, goals. Yeah, they, they kind of laughed as well. Um, so, so we compromised and, and in the end, um, they won. And, uh, and so we got something which to begin with, I was thinking it's almost trivial. It's almost too, but you know, we'll go with it. But um, simple is often best, right? Well, this is what I'm learning. And um, yeah, the aim is, is writing to, it was the then housing minister uh, who has now changed uh, and just saying, look, can we just have the planning laws change such that every new housing development has to come with, with hedgehog friendly holes. That's all I'm asking for. It's not a big yeah. ask. And, um, and it, was, it was largely ignored for quite a while. But then it sort of began to pick up. And we got to a third of a million signatures. And I was going, well, okay, that's, um, that's quite exciting. Because one of the interesting, the, the lure for me from change.org was uh, when people sign up to this, when I write an update to the petition, um, it gets sent out to the people who signed up. And, okay. and, and I, you know, I write my, you know, I was writing my blogs and, you know, 37 people were reading them. And suddenly I've got 333,333 people. I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm liking this. And then we got to half a million and um, a message was sent to me saying that um, the, the uh, Kit Malthouse, who was the housing minister at the time, um, Kit Malthouse is minded to take at Hedgehog Hugh seriously, which I just loved the idea that I hadn't quite gone as far as finding out what my name was, but the um, amount of stuff I've been doing so on social media had attracted their attention. Um, yeah. And it, 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 I, so I met with the housing minister. I met with the head of Barclay Homes. I've, um, and then unfortunately, we then had this whole, um, oh, government is obviously busy doing other things. So we had the whole Brexit yeah. thing. And I don't know if you remember, this is July 2019. I don't know what you were doing at the time, but there was a time when probably we all thought things can't really get much worse. Mm. And, uh, and then that, that priapic marshmallow moved into number 10. And it was like, oh, for <laughs> fuck's sake. Um, and we, so we, we, we got, but just as he was coming in, like ministers were doing their last things before they got sacked. And, and, and a, change, yeah. a change was made right at the last minute, to the National Planning Policy Framework, which is the document which goes out to all the councils, to their planning teams. And in it, it said, uh, we should have um, um, hedgehog highways. Um, the guidance should be... As standard. Yeah. yeah, but it still, it remained as guidance. Okay. okay? It's not, it, there are no teeth attached to this guidance. So I was yeah. excited, but it wasn't quite to the point of popping corks of champagne and i thought well we've got to keep pursuing this but then they went into brexit meltdown then then it was covid and you know i mean it's so i've kept the petition going and what's happened now is we've just it's, it's i i'm almost i am flabbergasted by it because last time i looked it had reached nine hundred and forty-three thousand signatures i'm i'm looking at it now and it's four off nine hundred forty-four thousand. oh my god so okay. and it's still going up and it's just like this is we are now within spitting distance of a million signatures um and and that in itself um yes it's a great to have an audience to to spread hedgehog love we we run a I, well I, I set up a, a a hedgehog highways facebook group because it became unmanageable dealing with the the, the change.org site yeah um so we have a 10 11 000 people now and thank goodness i have three amazing moderators on that because it's very busy uh, but it's yeah, all the people coming with questions about hedgehogs they're coming to that side um but for me the most amazing success has come with this group of people who are now noticing the developments in their own area and then they're speaking to the developers, just polite, polite conversations and letters. And I'm copied into them. And they're just saying, look, we've got you. This is the amount of passion there is for this. Yeah. Can't you just do the hedgehog thing? Well, again, as I say, it's such a simple idea. It's, it's really easy for developers to implement. And if there's just that little bit of pressure on them to do something good for, as we say, you know, Britain's best loved animal, um, it's not that big an ask, is it? But... You see, this is this. Don't don't let them know this. Though. There is a cunning plan um, that that this is the start because yeah. developers are going to do this, and they are already doing it. Bovis Homes, for example, has become the first of the major developers to commit to doing wherever possible hedgehog highways are built in, and it's just it's fantastic to have their their right. involvement. But there's no point doing that if, in the process of building your houses, you've eradicated all wildlife in the area. 
There's no yeah. point in doing that if all the planting around the new development is a bunch of, of alien species with no biodiversity value for yeah. uh, uh, the, the, the species in this country. There's no point in doing that if there is going to be you know, a desert into which you plonk it. Great, you put in your um, you put in your hedgehog holes. You say, great, we're hedgehog friendly, but no, you're not. So the, the point is once developers have made that step, then I go knocking on their doors again and say, yeah. okay, now we need to take... It's interesting, the gentle persistence. There's a guy in Suffolk um, in, in, um, called Jonathan Housego, and, and he's the first one to really make headway with this. And the letters are just so constantly polite. I saw and, that, yeah, there's a news article recently. It's lovely. And it was, I, I was meeting with Oxfordshire's, um, Oxfordshire's uh, count, uh, the, the, the county uh, ecologist uh, yesterday uh, um, to have a chat about um, uh, what we can do within my county. And, and she was talking about how wherever she goes, people are shouting at her yeah, from every side. You know, so the developers are shouting at her, to the members of the public are shouting at her. Um, and, and she just, she shuts down and, and that's just, it's just, it's awful for her. I mean, it's not, it's, it's really awful for her as a person, but it's just, it gets nowhere. But what Jonathan Hausker has shown is the real value of polite persistence. And I'm just, this is what I'm pushing. Everybody out there, you sign up to the petition, that's great. Join the Facebook, that's great. But mainly, look at the developments coming in your area and just have a conversation and gently push them. And if there's a problem, then you know, drop me a line and, and I, shall, I shall start sending you know, peer-reviewed scientific papers. Yeah. We, um, I don't know if you know, but I run a local conservation group, Ealing Wildlife Group in West London. And uh, we wanted to make this the year of the hedgehog for us. So we were going to do a big campaign about just within Ealing, getting everyone to go out and make those holes in their fences or walls and, you know, make a log pile and um, put in a hedgehog friendly pond and um, plant native plants and, and things like that. But uh the old pandemic has has kind of halted us in that in that respect. Maybe well, twenty twenty one will be our year of the hedgehog. Well, it is interesting. I think it, if I remember rightly, it was either this year or maybe it was the end of last year. Um, but in, in in the Netherlands, it was the year of the hedgehog as well. Um, was uh, it? Because I was over there doing doing uh, um, lectures and, and things. Uh, so I think it was the end of last year. My, I'm I'm afraid time has kind of concertinaed. I'm not quite sure where we are, what we're doing. Yeah, what uh, day it is. That was lockdown. That was a lockdown speciality. Um, and, <laughs> you know, people were saying you know, about the, the, the services, the, the, you know, the, the health services and the people keeping the food going. But actually for me, it was the bin men uh, because they told me it was Tuesday. And it was great when the bin, it was just like when it was back in order, it was like, that was, that was it. At least we know what day of the week it is on one day of the week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Hugh, I could talk all night to you, but um, to finish up, um, it's brilliant what you're doing. And you've mentioned, you know, a few places where people can go. The, the ultimate thing is you want them obviously to go to the petition, right? Well, actually, no, I want them to buy my books, actually, okay. to be honest. Okay. Um, and, and then after you've done that, go to the petition. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, being, being a, um, I mean, you've got a job uh, as well as doing this. Um, I, I, don't That's actually, true. I don't actually have a job. Um, I'm a, a freelance and, and largely unemployable sort of person. Um, I mean, I take photographs. I have a niche uh, photography. Um, my son um, spent five years as a, as a chorister at Magdalen College uh, in the choir school. There. I mean, just some of the most amazing music uh, on the planet. And I, I, so I started photographing the choir. So I now photograph nine different choirs, but I used to because now they don't do it anymore. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, and I photograph orchestras performing. Well, obviously that was then. And I photograph theatre groups. They're like, well, no, 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 you don't. And yeah, weddings. Oh, I did a wedding weekend before last. Um, and there was the, the, the two men getting married, uh, their two witnesses, uh, the registrar and me. Um, yeah. so yeah, the, 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 this, this idea of, uh, so uh, yeah, I've, I have, um, I have to be shameless I, I, as, as somebody who is self-employed and I said, yeah. I said to you, plug, plug away. Oh, no, plug, no, I am, I'm, uh, as you see, um, yeah. actually, so, so please, but please do the, the petition is, is going to hit a million, um, uh, which it, it, nothing changes in a sense. You know, I don't suddenly get a, a meeting with Boris Johnson, um, and especially after calling him a priapic marshmallow, I probably won't get a meeting with, the, with Boris Johnson. Uh, I've, but, uh, I've t- stolen that quotation. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I've written that down. <laughs> I, I like a little yeah, copyright Hugh Warwick at the end of that one. Um, yeah. And um, so, so yeah, I'm not, it, it doesn't 
mean that there is a dramatic sudden shift. But what it does mean is that people will pay attention again uh, to yeah. it. And um, I, I just, you know, I've, the, the, the attention that's got I me, mean, so Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin run the self-isolating bird club. Um, yeah. Friday mornings, um, I mean, throughout lockdown, it was pretty much every, it was all weekday mornings. Uh, I've been on it quite a few times. And it's been a wonderful way of, it's basically like spring watch, but paired right back. And, yeah. and this is the bit which is going to really upset the producers at the BBC. One, it's done on a complete shoestring. And two, it's so much better. Um, I love it. I much prefer the self-isolating bird club to Springwatch. Uh, and it's just that, you know, that the, the general passion, but they've pushed the petition and they've really helped. And it's, you know, so yeah. wonderful people out there doing so much good work. That's it. And I think one good thing to come out of lockdown as well is people have realized the value of nature and our green spaces and getting outdoors and connecting with it, haven't they? Um, well, I like to think so. It's a, uh, but, but, um, there's so much ground still needs to be covered with this because yeah. you know, as soon as you know, things got lifted, um, people were out there and they were trashing places. Um, so mm-hmm. yes, um, does, does the, the people who've been fortunate enough to have gardens to be able to go out into and have, uh, walking and cycling distance places, they can go and see nature for them is all very fine. It's a little bit almost twee. It's a very, very lovely experience, but for people who've been cooped up in a tower block, not able to go out and eventually are allowed to go out and get out. Yes, I can see why hell is raised somewhat, but it's, in an indication of, of the depth of education that's really needed uh, and, and is absent because if people had got that level of connection with nature already, they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't go out there trashing places. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the barbecues which have been lit and uh, my, my friend's um, uh, house in, in uh, um, Dorset uh, was, you know, they, 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 they saw the glowing in the sky and Brian May's place in Surrey um, when the Heathland went up, he's mm. having to move his favourite things, you know, getting ready to get out and evacuate. Um, you know, these things yeah. are caused by people being careless out there. Uh, so there is a group of us that love the natural world and we really, really care for it and we'll do what we can for it. Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's wrong to assume everybody's got the same level of connection and but it's also wrong to blame people who don't have that connection as being, it's not their fault. In a sense, it's a case of yeah. the opportunities have been withdrawn from them for having this connection. So we have, we are, it's beholden on us, the ones who have that connection, to work to make sure that as many people as that possible can have them, some yeah. sort of connection with the natural world because we know, we know that it makes us better. We, all the evidence is there. The biophilic research has been done. Nature makes us better physically, psychologically. It makes us better. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So where can people find out more? Your your Twitter is most active on um, social it, media, is it? Uh, yeah, the Twitter is at Hedgehog Hugh and the petition is um, um, change.org slash save our hedgehogs. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the at Hedgehog Hugh Twitter thing, um, I think that's also Instagram and Facebook. Maybe yeah. I'm not sure. I haven't quite haven't quite worked out what each of these things is. I'm still, I'm, I'm quite If they Google Hedgehog, oh, yeah, you, yeah, they'll yeah, find you. You'll find me in, in some form or other. And, um, yeah. and then I'm, av- I'm available for, for weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs. So, um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and get out and buy the book. Um, how much is the book? Nine ninety nine. You? It's a complete bargain. Um, and, and I think all my books are nine ninety nine, maybe. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're yeah. all they're all a bargain. And uh, and dare dare I say, I know it's a bit too early, but great stocking filler. <laughs> um, okay, the, the, if you buy the book from the publishers, Graphegg, and you use the code Change, uh, then um, then a pound goes to the British Hedgehog Preservation Society. Um, if you buy the book. Um, um, from Wild Sounds, they're currently doing it at a discount even greater than that on Amazon. Um, okay. So yeah, go out there, but, but go with the go with the publisher that goes to. You know, yeah, I know, but I mean, I, I would I would yeah. rather lots of people buy the book and um, and yeah. then I get paid. Go with what you can afford, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> choose wisely now look Hugh I can't let you go because you you threw in there and I did, wasn't aware of this fact when we just started the podcast but you threw in at the very start before we hit record that you're the world's only hedgehog stand-up comic yeah I, I mean I've met some pretty funny hedgehogs, but it's actually as, as the um from the point of view of the comedy it was um I had been to see Robin Ince uh, the, the amazing guy who does the the infinite monkey cage and 
uh, many, many other things. Um, it was one of the busiest comedians on the circuit until, of course, everybody stopped working. Um, and uh, so, so I went to see uh, Nine Lessons and Carols. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, sort of variety performance. And um, at the end of it, I, I was, I, I was fan, it was great fun, really funny. Um, and I tweeted a note. I just said, um, this was this is great, but there was no hedgehogs. And, um, and so he, he sent a message back saying, okay, next year, come and do it. And I was like, that was, that was in, that was in you know, December. And then and you were like, challenge accepted. Well, then around September, I was going, did he mean that? And I was like, and then it was like, then I wrote to him and he was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll get you in. And so just come for one night, see how it goes. And I then, I, in the run up to that, I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but I, I hardly ate. I was so scared. And I turned up at the venue and there was all these, all these people I knew off the radio and the television coming on to do their thing. And there was me. And, um, and still there's, I, I saw a comic recently and, and, and she was just saying, you were the one who was so scared, weren't you? And I said, yes, I was. Oh no. <laughs> and, it was, um, and so, so just before I went on, I, Robin was saying, well, how, how are you feeling? And I said, I said, I am so scared. Um, this is like my tattoo, you know, I'm never doing it again. And, um, and he said, yeah, but when you get off stage, the first thing you're going to say to me is, can I do it again? And I said, no, I'm not. I really am not because I am, you know, I went on it. It was at Bloomsbury Theatre, sold out performance. And, um, yeah, Barry Cryer was on stage. Yeah, he was like all these people. It was so much fun. And the rush of adrenaline and everything else that came with it. And I came off stage having completely forgotten the previous conversation and went up to Robin Ince and said, can I do it again? And, um, and <laughs> it's just, I mean, yeah, I was just as terrified the next time I did it. But um, yeah. it was, and I've done it a few times now. And each time I do it, I'm I am so scared and I look at these people who do it all the time and I know most of them went for years being so scared before they eventually got to the point where um it was um, where it looked like uh, it came naturally so, yeah. but it was just and it was just it was just so much fun being so outrageous um saying such rude words I cannot do the material I do on that stage uh that that, that you know, to the WI it just won't go down well um well you can do it on Sean's Wildlife podcast. I mean, we've had you know, we've had cursing and we've, we've had, had rudeness here before, okay. so well, you, you can tell you can tell us a few little hedgehog jokes if you wouldn't mind. Okay, well, <laughs> so, so this one this one has now garnered a bit of an extra layer of unpleasantness. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's not really jokes anyway. But so I was um, I was with uh, in the company of um, hedgehog carers, and uh, one of them pointed out that. The only way that the hedgehog can reproduce is because it has got a particularly long penis for the size um, of the animal. And I was just, as a moment of going, I've never even had that question in my mind. And, and the point of being a student, of being somebody who's looking at these things, is to have questions. I'd never even thought about how long a hedgehog's penis was. So I then went home and I went to my books and I went looking through my books and I couldn't find any reference to hedgehog penis length. So I went through the filing cabinet of scientific papers I've got uh, looking for, for uh, evidence of, of hedgehog penis length. And then in all honesty and innocence and absolute naivety, I thought, I know. So to, to, the take-home <laughs> message from this is, do not Google hedgehog penis length. Okay, just... <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there, um, because on the many problems you'll be confronted with, uh, it is um, that, that and, and my computer was never the same again. After is that the, uh, the the world's most prolific porn star currently now on remand for a whole bunch of hideous sex offences, uh, Mr. Ron Jeremy? Um, oh, his yeah. name is the Hedgehog. Oh. <laughs> All you will do is get, That's unfortunate, you. <laughs> you will end up feeling um, both intimidated, well, both or and and or uh, intimidated uh, uh, and inadequate. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so it's, it got me thinking, it's like, well, what, if, if we, if there's a whole bunch of species, but to actually start Googling, it goes wrong. You know, you, you, you go to your computer and you want to start researching, you know, tits and shags and boobies. And it's just, it just goes wrong straight away. So you've got to, you then have to revert to the Linnaean binomial, you know, our Latin name. And it was then I remembered a moment on, it was Graham Norton's show. And, and he'd presented Elton John with a plant as a present. And it just stuck in my mind. And you'll, you'll, you'll work out why. The white bramble from China. And it's like... I know it. I know it. <laughs> but go anus. on, tell the listeners. <laughs> burning anus. I mean, it's just... 
Who? And then it was, oh, Coburn. Coburn, of course. But it's just one of those brilliant names. Who on earth thought they could get away with calling a plant Cockburnianus? Anyway, it's, 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 um, it's not easy uh, um, relying on the Linnaean binomial either. Um, but it's that sort of material. It's really, really uh, the antithesis of my moderated talks about the, the uh, ecology, physiology. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not WI safe. <laughs> They, they, Very you good. do say that, and um, and but often there will be there'll be you know, questions at the end, and there will be one of them. Yeah, you know, there'll be a pause. And how did they do it? How do they make? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and the yeah. answer is exactly as a joke, which is carefully. Carefully, yeah. My dad um, goes and, and does talks for Birdwatch Ireland. He's a big bird nerd and uh, that's maybe where I get it from. But he takes great delight in, you know, talking about garden birds and then talking about the Dunnock's racy sex life and um, promiscuous sex life and cheating and um, checking each other. I often put it on my own social media. I did the other day, actually. And uh, yeah, he said you'd have, you know, the old ladies kind of, you know, knitting or maybe nodding off in the front row but as soon as he starts talking about the sex life of a little brown bird at the base of your hedgerow they all prick up and and take notice <laughs> so yeah, that's an maybe in- turn of phrase um, um if, yeah. if, if, if there is a, there's an author a friend of mine jules howard he wrote a book called sex on earth and um, he uh, he was my first guest on this podcast. Kidding? okay yeah so in, one yeah. of his chapters in his book sex on earth is 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 about me um, and, and hedgehogs, obviously, and not to my sex life. That, yeah. that, that's um, uh, really uh, nothing to write home about. But the uh, yeah, the, the sex life of hedgehogs. And it was a really weird experience to have done to me what I've done to so many other people, which was to turn up in their lives for a while and then go and write about them um, and then see what he wrote. Yeah, yeah. Very good. All right, look, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Good luck with the book. I will be buying it and adding it to my ever-growing pile of books, my reading list. I'm not doing very well. I, my attention span is, is pretty poor these days. Uh, too too many plates spinning, basically. But um, I will get around to it, and I'm really looking forward to, to having a look at it. So good luck with the launch, Thanks so much. which is actually tomorrow. And then uh, when anyone's listening to this, uh, when it goes out on Friday, um, it'll already be available. So rush off and, and uh, pick up a copy for yourselves but Hugh thanks so much it's been a pleasure talking to you Uh, great fun and um, hopefully keep in touch Uh, absolutely cheers then yeah thanks a lot bye now so for anyone listening thanks again for joining us on Sean's Wildlife Podcast Um, we are racking up the episodes now Um, as I've said before all production costs are covered by myself so if you do want to support the the podcast you can do so on ACAST Supporter uh, just as a one-off donation we would really appreciate it and tune in in the next couple of weeks for a brand new episode (laughs) 